Welcome to Get Your Book Seen and Sold. I am your host, Claudine Wolk. You can find me at my Substack account, claudinewolk.substack.com. We're talking all about publishing and book marketing. If you have decided that you want to write a book and you're trying to figure out how to publish it, or maybe you've already written a book and you're trying to figure out how to market it, this is the podcast slash Substack for you. Our goal is to give you great tips, by example in some cases, to help you get your book seen and sold. So join us through the newsletter or the podcast today and get your book seen and sold. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star rating. Welcome to Get Your Book Seen and Sold. I am your host, Claudine Walk. With us today is Jordan Peterson. Jordan is a writer. He's also the author of the Substack titled Dispatches from Inner Space. We're going to find about his article that he posted recently that really got my attention, and it's called The Notebook Rule, How to Get Off the Digital Dope and Reclaim Your Humanity. Welcome, Jordan. Thank you. Happy to be here. So... I read this article and it really resonated with me. And I was hoping you could tell the audience what it's about, how you came to write it, and what the what the input has been from the larger world. Uh, it's uh, it's frankly it's been it's been a real it's been a, a pretty astonishing thing because <clears throat> I'd say it's out of everything I've out of anything I've ever done personally as I've sort of toiled away in obscurity in my creative life it's mm-hmm. it's been really the the first thing that kind of like just barely penetrated a sort of wider audience and 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 started to get really noticed um you know on Substack for <clears throat> for a writer with just a few hundred subscribers um on my Substack an uncommonly popular article is is still nothing in the sort of great ocean of the internet but uh but you know for me it's been pretty amazing to see the the reaction. I've been working on, I've been kind of working on the idea just personally for a long time, because as I kind of just uh, talk about in the article, I realized sometime, I think in, in sometime last year, it kind of clarified for me that my, what I kind of thought of as this sort of parade of addictive problems, you know, uh, like TV or games or whatever, it was really just screens. It was all digitally mediated or digital media. And, um, and that this is like sort of my Achilles heel. This is the thing that would always you know, sidetrack me or keep me from getting things done or throw me off my goals or it just waste time. And I, you know, and I've been battling this for so long. I mean, it seems like my whole life, you know, um, that uh, realizing that it's, I could, I could actually categorize the whole thing as sort of like the way that I interact with technology and in particular, it, you know, digital media um, technologies that facilitate the consumption and engagement with digital media. And so I've been kind of for, for the last maybe six months or so have been, you know, tooling around with different strategies and tactics and trying to figure out like, how how can I have a healthier relationship? Because, you know, I don't want to I don't want to be like a monk. I don't want to go like live in a cabin. I don't, I'm not <laughs> I'm not going to like, swear off all podcasts or whatever. Like I, I like the stuff that I engage with. It's just a problem of excess and moderation. And I'm trying to figure out how to live my life in a way that is more deliberate. And, and it started it just the thing that clarified me for me was just this recognition that it was that almost the whole problem came down down to one of posture was what, what was my posture toward technology or to and to digital media was it passive where I was just going to kind of follow compulsive desire which was pr- predominantly seeded by the media itself or uh, you know and just kind of be led around by the nose so to speak or was I going to be really deliberate and active and and really make 
conscientious decisions, iterate my behavior over time, and try to just be a more kind of agentive human being, which I wanted want desperately to be. But anyway, and so um, I actually can't take full credit for this idea. Uh, another writer that I follow named Justin Murphy had just as kind of like a an aside one day, he just published a short kind of like suggestion to his audience saying, hey, I've been trying this thing lately that's it's been kind of working for me. And it is that um, I keep the my computer closed, except for when I've made a specific decision about what to do with it. And then like, I'll open it up and use it. And then when I'm done, I close it again, and then walk away. And then until I make another specific decision. So the notebook rule is really kind of like my version of that. Um, because I, I, I tried his thing a few months ago, I tried his thing. And, and he, he recommended this almost a year ago, but like it took me, you know, six months of failure at every other strategy to finally say, OK, I'll try this sort of absurd kind of extreme tactic, really isolated specific use of um, of technology. And and I tried it. And for a couple of weeks, uh, it was like it was like magic. I was like, I was like, I can't believe how effective this is. This is incredible. I would get more dent done in a day than I had in a you know previous week. It was it was amazing. But it kind of wore off. And. I, you know, I, I, I sort of slid back into old behavior patterns really easily. And it was just, and then it was just a fight, like for another couple of months, of like, what, like, how do I sustain this? How do I manage this? And so the notebook rule is just kind of like the latest iteration of me trying to is, is, you know, the latest uh, battle plan, I guess, like, this is the next stage of the war I have on my own um, compulsive behavior. So I, uh, yeah, it's been really helpful and energizing and exciting to have like a very tangible, physical sort of version. I've, I've been, you know, in a lot of the studying I've done about how to, you know, change behavior, et cetera, ritual is like really important um, and physical, tangible um, behaviors are really important. So anyway, I could go on and on and on, but that's like the, I was going to say the short summary. It's not the short summary. It's, <laughs> it's a summary of things, but uh, that's kind of where I'm at now. Okay. Well, let me, let me ask you a bunch of questions because I think people are listening and they're going, what the heck are they talking about? Especially if, if you haven't read. <laughs> so sorry. Yeah, no, no, not, context, not at all. No, 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 no. on. Not at all. The article I will, I will link to in the show notes. And again, it's called The Notebook Rule. I, just to give you some context, Jordan, I read this, I guess it was a Saturday ago, and I, I, my husband and I were both sitting at the island, and I was, and I was starting to make some eggs for us, you know, weekend Saturday, and I said, oh, I had to turn off the eggs. I'm like, Joe, you got to listen to this, you know, and he was like, wow, okay, I really like this too. So I want to, I want to clue the audience into, first of all, why you felt the need to do this, and then what you reveal in your article about how addictive it is, and this is, we're talking about social media and interacting on your phone and interacting on all the different social media channels, how addictive, how addictive it is and how it's done on purpose. Well, yeah, That was I mean, fascinating to me. Well, so the whole, you know, I, I think that, I think that there is a, uh, there is a subset of people who have been thinking about this or writing about this, who understand this pretty intuitively at this point, that that um, all of pretty much all of the tech companies that produce consumer goods or media, they all know this. They all like very deliberately understand that in, you know, uh, we, we call it the attention economy, but the attention economy in many ways is just the economy. Now, I mean, it's almost almost everything is based on, um, you know, if you can't get someone's attention, you cannot get their money. And so um, the and, you know, an attention itself, even if you can't get their money, if you can get their attention, you can sell that attention. And so um, we, we've all very much exist in the attention economy. And so what the big winners in the attention economy are going to be the people who are the best 
at getting and keeping attention at whatever cost just like does not matter. Um, and so this is, you know, this has been, uh, there's been a lot of conversation around why social media is so toxic it's because it's an outrage machine. Well, why is it an outrage machine? Well, it's because psychologically we understand that like people are um, more prone to pay attention to things that make them mad um, or angry or fearful. And so uh, is it any surprise that, you know, on these platforms when you're doom scrolling and you can't look away, it's because your, 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 your brain is essentially being hijacked by an algorithm that understands you better than you understand you. Um, and it knows that if it can keep your attention, it knows how to keep your attention, then it, if it can keep your attention, that attention can be monetized. It can be sold to advertisers. It can be sold to investors. It can be, you know, there's all kinds of things you can do with someone, someone's attention. So anyway, so this is the world we live in. And all of almost all of the things that we engage with, whether they're for work or entertainment or whatever, um, they are almost all tuned to try to win in the attention economy. Um, unfortunately, the big loser in the attention economy is all of us. Um, because while we have our sort of agency and attention and brains um, colonized by all of these things, we lose ourselves. We just don't, we don't have, we don't have, we don't get to decide where to allocate our attention. That's decided for us, you know, with the economic incentives of people who are not us. Um, and sometimes it's to our benefit, but frankly, most of the time it is not to our benefit. Um, and we are essentially just being exploited. It is a kind of digital enslavement. And I feel, um, and I, and the thing is that you can become aware of this and it's, it's amazing. It's like, if you've never heard of this before, if you're, if this is kind of new to you, you haven't thought about it, you haven't realized it. Um, you know, you can do some research. It's, it's really, I mean, it's very, very much entering, I think the public consciousness, like people are starting to become aware of this. Unfortunately, becoming aware of it doesn't, doesn't solve the problem. Like any addict can tell you becoming aware of your addiction does not stop you from being an addict. You could be perfectly aware you know, that you have a drinking problem and still wake up in a gutter, you know, any, any given morning, like it's not going to help you. And so this is, so my, my work and my efforts over the past few months specifically have been trying to figure out what, what, like what drastic measures do I need to take to actually solve the problem for myself? Because, because being aware of it, like I have been for a long time, it just, it hasn't helped. You know, I can, I just am so, I'm so enthralled. Like I can't, it's like, I can't get away from this stuff. Right. Um, and I, yeah. I've never really heard it explained that way. And it made perfect sense to me what you were saying, but I hadn't, ne I never thought of it in terms of addiction. Uh, another thing that you brought out in the article was that the idea behind the, the monetizing, and I would call it maybe the business model, is to make it so that you don't have to make a decision. And that really, can you explain that? Because that that really hit me. And I thought, oh, my goodness, because if we can't make a decision, and they're, you know, they're going to say, oh, it's for convenience, as you as you pointed out earlier. But is it really? And then what happens to my critical thinking ability? And then what happens to my creativity? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is, uh, you know, it's honestly, it's hard to talk about this stuff because because the situation is pretty dire. <laughs> um, and it's and the more you describe it and think about it, the more sort of like disturbed you'll you'll get about it. it uh, so the idea here is that the, the best way to keep somebody's attention is to make sure that they uh, if you have someone's attention, you don't want them 
having to decide again whether or not to continue giving you attention. You just want to hold on to it. And when it comes to, you know, using certain, uh, here's a great example, uh, Amazon, right? Everybody, almost everybody uses Amazon. They're like by far the kings of commerce right now. They, they, they own, they almost, they own to some degree, like the, the market for consumer goods. And so, um, and how do, you know, how does the Amazon app work? Like when you go on Amazon and you, you know, you, they want, they want the experience of using the Amazon app to be as frictionless as possible. So when you open the app, if you tap on the app, right away, you'll have a, sh- a search bar. So all you need to do is type in what you want. Suddenly you'll have, you know, all the things in front of you and the top option. Uh, and of course there's a bunch of different things that they're trying to do. They're trying to, you know, they want to, they want to sell the thing that they want to sell, but they also want to make sure it's the thing that you're going to buy. So anyway, the, what the, the, the top option is very likely the one that you want. So they're going to do their best to make sure you don't have to, you don't actually have to scroll very much. You can, and if you scroll, you can scroll endlessly, but but they want to make sure you don't have to scroll very much. And when you tap on the thing, what's the first thing you see? You see a button that says buy now. And so like how many, basically their, their entire, they've got, I mean, they've spent, it, it would not be an exaggeration to say that they had spent a hundred million dollars trying to understand how to design this app to make it as easy as possible for you to buy the thing that you want to buy. They've probably spent much more than that. And so you are essentially, every time you open up the Amazon app, you are opening up the best possible iteration that, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars can buy of the thing that will make this experience as frictionless as possible so that you will get to get between you having a thought that you want something and you having spent the money to get that thing in as few sort of decisions as possible and as few taps or motions as possible. And that's that's the same way with everything. I mean, so I, I mentioned in the article the idea of auto autoplay for streaming services. So if you're watching the YouTube or Netflix or whatever, that uh, at the end of an episode, if you don't change this in the settings, which it's kind of complicated to do, if you don't deliberately go and change this in the settings, the 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 uh, default setting is to automatically play the next thing in the queue. And so it will never stop. It will never stop playing. And and so you don't have again. You don't have to make a decision. Again, the point the point they made in the article is that decision making and friction friction is synonymous with decision making. It's a euphemism for decision making. You don't want if you are a company who is trying to capture and monetize the, the attention of consumers, users, whatever. You do not want them making decisions. You want them making as few decisions as possible. You want to be making their decisions. And so you have an idea what is going to be the best benefit to you as a company for like what's what is the behavior pattern that you want as a company and then you want to make that behavior pattern as seamless and frictionless as possible so that it will happen as often as possible and honestly just the human agency just gets in the way so they've tried to essentially iterate that out of our interaction with these products yeah and i i don't know what that means exactly or what it says about the companies that come up with the these strategies i mean it makes them evil geniuses or something i i don't know but it can't be good well, it's a it game it can't be good yeah it's a game i mean it's it's so and the other thing i think one of the things that makes my perspective kind of unique here is i don't consider any of these companies evil and i don't consider the people who run them evil what it is is it's a bad set of incentives we have created a game that in order to win makes you evil. <laughs> so like it basically, you know, uh, the best, the best analogy I ever heard was someone and I'm, I'm not uh, much of a sports fan. So um, this, but this still worked for me. So hopefully it'll work for, for everyone else too. The, the best analogy I heard is basically saying is asking the question, if basketball, if the game of basketball, if the NBA changed the rules of basketball so that every team was allowed three punches during the course of a game that every, every team could, you know, throw and land three punches within the, within the run of any typical NBA game. How would that change basketball? Well, it would 
ruin basketball. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely ruin it. Because it'd be so much less about all the skills that go into making great a great basketball game. And instead, you would turn it into, well, how can I best leverage the punches that I get during this game and make them the most effective? And so, you know, rules of any game need to be tuned to make that game to give you the kind of game that you want to be played or the kind of result from the game. So the, the problem with our structure, the problem with the attention economy is that all of the rules are tuned to essentially to make us into passive consumers that are unthinking and unfeeling and it is essentially to reduce us to our eyes and our wallets. Now, surely there are some evil people, but I think by and large, it's people just trying to do their jobs and, pl- and play by the rules that have been that are already set. And in playing by those rules, then the result is the exploitation of almost everyone. Right. And the genius, I mean, maybe genius, but what it's doing to the person is not is not healthy. And you personally decided in your life that it wasn't a healthy thing. And we're not just talking about Amazon here. We're talking about Instagram, Facebook, like, get, you know, being on all, all the different and games, Everybody. you're saying yeah. and being on the and games. Okay, for sure. Wow. Okay, so you have a list kind of like a test that that someone can give themselves <laughs> to determine 21 signs you might be a digital dope addict. So we're going to get on this. But I'm wondering, as I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, okay, well, how many do I have to say yes to that determine that, yes, I am a digital junkie? Well, I mean, I was, it's definitely a bit of a tongue in cheek test. Like this is, there's no science involved here. Um, (laughs) But I was basically just trying to enumerate all of the negative kind of uh, negative sort of use signals things that we do that we maybe wish we didn't do right. um, when it comes to our interactions with our screens. And, and, the, and if you do any of that, frankly, if you do any of them over and over again, it's, it's pretty good because anything that you do rep- repeatedly that you wish you didn't do, that's, that's one of the hallmarks of addic- addiction. Like, man, I really wish I didn't do this thing. And then you go do the thing again and again and again and again. I mean, that, what is that? That's, that's addiction. So um, I, yeah, it's a list of basically as many of those behaviors as I could think. So I could think of. That's pretty funny. Yeah. So check check that out, guys. And and then you can you can report back and decide where you fall. But anyway, okay, so we've we've identified it's a problem. We've identified kind of what what's being done to us. And then, as you said, recognizing the problem doesn't solve anything. So how tell us about specifically about the notebook um, method and what you think or the notebook rule, how what it is specifically and how you how you use it. It's you know, I, I designed it to be as simple as possible. And the rule is basically that anytime I want to interact with a screen, especially like a touchscreen or an interactive screen, but anytime that I want to use that kind of technology, I have to write it down first. I have to write something down, even if it's just a couple of words. I have to take a notebook and a pen physically and write down what I'm about to do, like listen to music or get on a Zoom call. <laughs> and uh, and I should say right off the bat, I'm not 100% with this. I wish I was. But the the rule, the, the purpose of the rule, and so, so the idea is that I have to write it down. And then as soon as I'm done with the thing that I wrote down, I close the computer or walk away, or put the phone down or whatever. And then if I want to go back and pick the phone back up or, you know, open the computer up again or whatever, I, it's the same thing. I just have to write it down. Like, what am I about to do? And the purpose of this is to increase friction. We are so like we we have made the idea of convenience, you know, the, the highest virtue of the consumer economy, right? Like anything you want things to be as convenient as possible, but convenience is what got us here. And so this rule is designed to basically um, undermine all of the effort that these technologies 
deploy to try to make the using them as frictionless as possible. I'm trying to I'm trying to introduce friction into the process of using these things. Oh, I love that. I love that. And and so how long have you been doing it and what have your results been? Specifically, so <clears throat> like I mentioned, I tried to kind of like the early iteration of this that did not involve a notebook, but it was just basically me trying to think, okay, what am I about to do? And then doing the thing and then closing the computer and then doing that again. Um, the first time I did that was a few months ago, about three, three and a half months ago. The, in, in the current iteration with, you know, using a notebook to write down what I'm about to do um, and, and trying to do that pretty comprehensively, it's been a little less than three weeks. We're not talking about, you know, when I published that article, it was, I think it was on technically day six of my experiment. And since then, now we're on what, what is it? It's the 18th. So day 19, because <laughs> I started on December 31st. It was my kind of end of year, like, okay, well, I want to, you know, close out the year in the best way possible with the least screen addictive. <laughs> like, um, And uh, so end 2023 strong, start 2024 strong. So I started on December 31st. And like I said, have not been 100%, but it has it has radically dramatically altered my life. I mean, honestly, it's it's the analogy in my mind that I don't share with people because it's it sounds really silly. It's kind of like I found like a portal key to Narnia and, you know, holding on to the portal key, like staying in Narnia requires holding on to the portal key and the portal key is using the notebook rule. And it's funny because I, I, I found myself getting yesterday, um, actually, for the first time in, in uh, yeah, 18 or 19 days, I spent like a good few hours in sort of like backsliding into like just just totally compulsive, just like scrolling and like binge watching Netflix. And, and afterward, it was like I'd gotten kicked out of Narnia. And, <laughs> and, what, and what it's like being in Narnia is that you just love life more. Like you're just more present things. I, it, sometimes it's harder. Sometimes there are moments where you're like, man, I really wish I could escape this moment and go check Instagram or something. But instead, I'm just going to sit here and my kids crying and dinner's terrible because everything because the kids are just being total jerks. And like I'm and I'm tired and not feeling great. My wife is upset because she's had to deal with this all day. And like, I wish so badly that I could escape this moment, but I'm just going to have to sit here. But it also means that there are are these just sublime this uh, that so many so many moments so many so much of the substance of just being alive starts becoming available and you realize that just the just being alive is 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 this miraculous beautiful experience and you cannot you cannot communicate that to someone with words or with writing you all you can do is experience it and you can't experience it if you're on the digital dope, it will it suppresses all of the experience of just being alive, and it replaces it with uh, distraction, amusement, momentary inspiration, or whatever, or outrage. Right? You know, it's this it's this terrible Faustian bargain where you're like, well, you don't have to be bored anymore, but you also aren't going to feel alive. And so, for the past you know several weeks, I've it's been this sort of blossoming of like feeling alive, and it's and it's magical, and it and it's the most reinforcing thing. It's like I want to keep doing this. I want to keep doing this stupid, inconvenient thing of like writing crap down before I get on the computer because it's because as long as I'm doing this, I am protected against, to some degree, this sort of enslavement that that shuts down my ability to experience life. Oh, gosh, so many thoughts are going through my head. The first, you know, as a book marketer, someone who helps authors, I'm thinking, oh, gosh, I hope he's he's got all these notes because this would make a great book. 
You know how people my year yeah. off of the the digital yeah, dope. I mean, I mean, hold on, I, I, I plan Jordan. on it. I plan on writing. I plan on writing a book about it. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like I got to do the work first, so I got to do it for a period sure. of time. And I am, I am taking notes. Um, I've written a lot. Of what I'm, whatever, all the things I'm telling you, I've written a lot of them down. I have these conversations. I'm trying to, you know, I, I because I do, you know, part of this is, you know, wanting badly to help other people as well, and my my own kids. You know, like I have two small kids, they're five and two. So they haven't yet been enslaved by digital dope. Thankfully, we keep them off of touch screens for the most part. And like, we just, you know, we even, we, we restrict movies to like on weekends. Like we just, we try really hard not to like turn them into addicts too early. Um, but you know, they're going to run into the stuff. They're going to run into the same world of world of wonders <laughs> that, that we all live in. And it's very seductive. It's 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 very 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 hard not to get entrapped. And so you know, the, but the like with anything, the only the only place I can start is with myself. So yeah, doing my best. Absolutely. And this this um, joy, this joy that you speak of, <laughs> tell, <laughs> tell us a little bit about that in terms of your work life and have 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 you become more creative? You are a writer. Uh, you're a fiction writer. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute, but. Has it helped your creativity? Because you know, you know, one of the things I hear a lot from from writers or authors that I speak to is like, um, I never have the time. I never have the time, and I'm wondering if maybe if it's replaced, you know, the digital is replaced with creativity time. That might change. Oh my gosh, yes, like the a hundred percent. And <clears throat> it's funny because. I couldn't, you know, it's it's only been a few weeks since I've specifically been doing the notebook role, but uh, already I it, it's it's so it's so obvious that so much of the work that I want to be getting done. And so I, you know, I have a full time job. It's a business that I started last year, so it's like it, it's very demanding. Two small kids, and it's it's a yeah, it's very very challenging to 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 juggle and balance everything. But it is impossible to get certain things done. Uh, if I am wasting a lot of time every day, like it's, it's, it's just impossible. And I have another note about that. But first, I'll say when it comes to, you know, I don't know if I could say like, oh, I'm more creative. I'm pretty sure I am. But it's more about just like, I'm more able to show up and just do the work than I am when I'm sort of uh, caught in the sort of compulsive cycles of avoidance where I am, you know, uh, oh, this is this is hard or challenging or confusing or whatever. Like, what like why why does writer's block always look like surfing the internet you know it's like it's not it's not writer's block it's an opportunity to escape the difficult situation via this like really easy you know close at hand source of digital dope writer's block is uh i don't i think it's mostly a fiction it's mostly just like oh when writing is hard do you do it still do you still sit down and do it anyway or do you not and for most of us including myself when writing is really hard uh, the often the answer is no, I will not do it. <laughs> I wait until it feels easier. I wait until the inspiration strikes or I wait until whatever. But, you know, as, as any career writer or long-term hobbyist writer or whatever knows that the, the real writing is just sitting down and doing it regardless. You just sit down, you just show up and, um, and showing up for writing is the same as showing up for anything. It's extremely difficult to do if a spin, it may be impossible to do if you, your default is to escape you know, boring or challenging situations through a screen, which most of us do. You've said the word escape by my count four times now. And I, uh, yeah. that's a never, that's, I've never even thought of it as an escape. And you're right. You're so right. It is an escape, isn't it? Absolutely. And one that doesn't make you feel good. <laughs> well, often right? no, but here's the thing too. And this is a really critical point. A lot of, so escape is the best word because 
it is, it, it often is, is an escape of something uncomfortable. We are, you know, any kind of discomfort, whether that's fear or the feeling of overwhelm or sadness or frustration or just not knowing what to do next, like decision paralysis, like any discomfort that, you know, we have been given a myriad of tools to escape that discomfort. And almost all of it is digitally mediated, screen mediated. And you could you can point to social media, you can point to whatever. One of the interesting things that I've discovered, especially over the past um, while, I've been really um, trying to dig into this topic in my own life, is that there are actually, there are means of escape that are not unpleasant at all. And I mentioned TikTok in the article, I think. And TikTok is profoundly dangerous, I think, because because it does not make you feel bad in the way that a lot of digital means of escape do make you feel bad. And so, yeah, it's it's a little easier to say, oh, this is why am I doing this? This makes me feel bad. So like, I will take action to stop doing this because it makes me feel bad. It's a lot harder <laughs> when the thing that you're doing right. makes you feel good and just keeps making you feel good indefinitely. Right. Um, you know, I I had I have been struggling with a with I would call it a full blown addiction to a, a particular video game that I will not mention to spare anyone the the danger of encountering it, but that is one of the most successful video games right now that you can play. And it is it is so incredibly addictive, partly because there's almost never a point at which you don't want to play anymore. Like you don't, it, it's not, there's not, there's not a point at which you like feel bad, you know, like, oh, this is making me feel so terrible. It's like, no, you know, classically, it's the thing that the more you play, the more you want to play. And, um, and it's a great game. It's very well designed. It's very, it's very fun. It like, it's, there's a lot of problem solving. There's a lot of, there's just enough randomness to like make it exciting. So it's very much like gambling and it's, uh, anyway, and I would, I could, I could sink so many hours into that game. And I noticed that the more that I played that game, the less I wanted to do anything else, just, you know, writing, spending time with my family, doing my, you know, my work, my job, whatever. I just like, didn't, I cared like increasingly less and less about that stuff. And I was just like, man, I feel like I could be low grade happy all the time if all I did was play this game. Wow. Um, and which is just which is which sounds insane, but you know, I mean, we're given these hypothetical um you know, like what what's that that's it's, there's that great thought experiment, right, which is if you could <clears throat> if someone could put you like in a chair and and you know, and hook you up to some like matrix type thing or whatever and you could have just this you could be like happy and content and feel great forever until you die. Would you do that? Or would you want to stay in real life? And people were like, I think I want to stay in real life. But I think we're learning that the answer is no. Most of us, if we're not really careful, if we're not really, really thinking about it, we will kind of default to the decision of no thanks on the discomfort. Um, I'm just going to feel sort of low grade, happy and comfortable all the time. And I'll be I'll be satisfied with that. You can just like set me up to feel that. And I we're I really feel like we're quickly approaching a place where a pretty large percentage of the population can be sort of like pleased enough for all throughout the course of their day. They just they don't have to be very uncomfortable. It's it's a kind of death, I think. But um, but it's not. But it doesn't feel bad. It feels pretty good. Well, I was thinking um, I was thinking medicated. A type of yeah, medicine, yeah. medicine, yeah, yeah. Wow, but the, the, but there's also that numbness, and then and then and it's taking you away from all the other good things you could be experiencing or creating if you weren't spending time on that. Yeah, like when you when you step away, if you hazard to ask yourself the question, "Is this what my life? What I want my life to be?" Mm-hmm. You won't like the answer, mm-hmm. and that's where and that's where the misery comes back. Which, again, 
like any addiction narrative, will most frequently drive you back to the thing because it's way more comfortable in there. It's like being in a warm bath, Mm -hmm. you know, and the air is chill and you get out of the bath and you're like, it's so cold. And so you get back in the bath. Right, right, right. And that's, I mean, I I think that 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 has more than anything else. I mean, I, I I can feel it almost in my body. Like YouTube is a big one for me. I love YouTube. I could spend so much time on YouTube. And I can feel it. I can feel the sort of like, almost this like relief, like this sense of like this like wash of like I'm climbing back into the warm bath. Like when I when I fire up YouTube, because ah, I know what this I know what this is. Like I know I know I know how I know how to be here. This is great, you know. And it's not joyful, but it doesn't need to be. It just needs to be comfortable. It's so comfortable, and um, it's very very hard. And th- and the purpose of the notebook rule is to give me just enough space to decide. Do I really want to sacrifice all the things I'm going to sacrifice for the sake of being a little bit comfortable right now? And if I have to answer that question over and over and over again, hopefully, sometimes, hopefully, mostly, I can say, no, (laughs) I would like to live my life. I would like not to just be comfortable. But yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's an insightful article. Again, we've been speaking with Jordan Peterson, his Substack is titled Dispatches from Inner Space. The actual website is thedispatches.substack.com. What I find and I love about so many of the authors that I've interviewed on Substack is that when they, the fiction writers write a nonfiction post, it just, it kills and and this oh, thank you. this one absolutely did. But again, you are a fiction writer. The um, genre is f- philosophical science fiction. Uh, so first of all, what is philosophical science fiction? And tell us about where we can find your writings and what you're working on now. Um, well, uh, I don't have satisfying answers to any of those questions, but I'll do my <laughs> best. Um, so philosophical science fiction is kind of a catch-all term. I, I think I, I don't know if I made it up. I may have made it up. Um, I was trying to identify like what is the what is the genre that grabs me the most, and I think it is that it is this idea of science fiction that cares maybe even more about philosophy than it does about science. Um, I care deeply about science. I care deeply about philosophy, um, and I love fiction. So it just kind of was a uh, you know <laughs> an effort to try to consolidate very disparate esoteric interests into like one umbrella. Um, which is, uh, kind of a, fool, a fool's errand, but that's, that's my best shot so far. Um, I would say I write, uh, more, more than, uh, I think the, the more standard term is speculative fiction. So I'll write, you know, I, I write things that could be sort of categorized as fantasy or horror or, um, near future or dystopian or whatever. Um, it's just a matter of, um, you know, whatever seems interesting. Um, I don't write very many stories that are just sort of straight up literary fiction, um, but I do that too as well sometimes. So, um, yeah, I, uh, what I'm working on right now, I'm primarily trying to finish this novel that I've been working on for a long time. Um, which is a, I won't even try to summarize it, but it is very much in the vein of philosophical, philosophical science fiction. Um, I like to say it's kind of a, a marriage between, um, uh, Harry Potter meets Star Wars meets Dune. It's kind of like if, you know, we were, living in the world that is familiar, like our world, you know, as it is now in 2024. But there happened to be a galactic federation that was then we were kind of a protected planet. So it's sort of like Star Trek-y too, I guess. Anyway, and uh, and the sort of tracking the journey of a few young people's sort of revelation into that wider sort of galactic political 
conflict um and and how they you know uh it's it's been really really fun to work on it but it is also just a mammoth project and uh i'm i'm hoping yeah i don't know we'll see but at some point or another, I'm going to finish this book. <laughs> I was going to say, so said every successful author. So there you go. So um, uh, uh, also, also yeah. every unsuccessful one. So yeah, right. <laughs> oh no, let's not go to negative town. So uh, tell us where we can. Do you do you share uh, any part of that writing on your Substack? So I um, I did I started to serialize the the book is called the the working title is Arc Eternal. Um, like a r c h slash eternal um and i started to serialize it on my Substack under there's actually a, a sub category or i don't know what you call it a section of my Substack um that is labeled arc eternal so you can go there and you can read i think 28 chapters of the book um that are all up there uh for anyone to see um i'm in the process of going back to revise to do some light revisions of those chapters as well as trying to finish what is essentially the second half of the book it's it's going to be a, a relatively long one but um which you would expect i guess with a you know grand galactic drama um but uh yeah i uh you can you can see all that on my substack i would i would recommend rather I don't, I'm not really interested in trying to push a lot of audience toward a book that's like half finished and half semi-published on my Substack, but um, I do I do publish short stories now and again, um, and I I would definitely love to point people toward the collection that I published on Kindle called um, Shadow and Fire, which is a uh, collection of 14 short stories, two of which are novellas that uh, that I'm very proud of. I think it actually represents my best fiction work from the past 10 years. So I feel, yeah, I feel pretty, pretty proud of that collection. I think that there's something for everyone in there. So we'd love people to check it out. Anybody who decides to pay for a subscription to dispatchers from inner space. The only thing that I promise you is a free copy of the ebook. So uh, (laughs) if you'd like to, if you'd like the hack, I think it's a few dollars less for a month of subscription subscribing to dispatches than it is to just like buy it on Kindle. So if you want to do that, be my guest, please. <laughs> Very good. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes. Uh, I'm wondering what else is on your dispatches Substack that people enjoy? Um, lots of other articles uh, that are nonfiction that are uh, just stuff that I think about. I, you know, th- when I started Dispatches from Inner Space, my, my only real requirement was that it be a place that I could publish whatever I wanted to publish, you know, and I, I'm sort of, I've made efforts at self-branding a little bit, but not extreme efforts because I, there's a lot of stuff that I like. There's a lot of stuff I like writing about. And I really, really want there to be at least one place on the internet that I feel comfortable putting whatever I feel like putting up. And that's, that's dispatches. So yeah, if you, if you like me at all, then Hopefully you'll like some of the stuff that I write. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So again, we're, we're, it's thedispatches.substack.com. That's where you can find it. I'm going to definitely link to that in the show notes as well as Jordan's other Kindle books. And I'll also put the link to where they can find Archie Eternal. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I'm also going to mention it's when you're searching for Jordan, which I'm sure you will do now on Substack, it's J.E. Peterson is his name on Substack. So you want to make sure that you find him. Well, I have an idea. Why don't we meet back in three months and you can tell us how you're doing with The Notebook Rule, which, I mean, it's a great title for a book. (laughs) It really is. I would love that. That would be very helpful to me uh, for the accountability and to uh, keep myself on track. So yeah, I would love to do that. 
Fantastic. Thank you. And thank you for sharing all your ideas with us. It's a fascinating conversation. We appreciate you being with us, Jordan. Thanks. Thank you. And you are listening to Get Your Book Seen and Sold. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, share the podcast episode with a fellow author or leave a review. Just scroll down to the bottom of the show details while on your app and you'll see the review option. Thanks in advance for your support. Remember, my new book, Get Your Book Seen and Sold, The Essential Book Marketing and Publishing Guide, written with co-author Julie Marquette, is on sale today wherever you buy books. It's your personal guide and resource to get your book seen and sold.